We don't change policy, picking dates, nothing with vintage. Super interesting. It very, very interesting. It can't because I'd rather sacrifice a vintage at a point of a lesser wine if that's going to allow me to get to an articulate point where we ultimately produce a great wine. Hello and welcome to the Ex-Animo Wine Co. podcast. I am David Clark. Ex-Animo Wine Co. is a wine distributor in Cape Town. Please go to our website, exanimo.co.za, for more on what we do. The purpose of this podcast is to document the stories in South African wine. We are interested in how we got to where we are today and where we are going tomorrow. Thank you very much for joining us. We are in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa, where the sale and movement of wine is, at least for now, forbidden. So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. We're using the internet to record these podcasts and it doesn't always behave. Apologies for any issues with the audio. We've tried to edit it to make it as listenable as possible. Today on the podcast, we have Ivan Sadi of Sadi Family Wines, based in the Swatland. It's difficult to overstate how important Ivan is to the modern reputation of South African wine. Put simply, he is among the most influential people in South African wine, ever. I wanted to talk to Ivan about his journey in wine from his days at Elsenburg through the Spice Street experience and making those first vintages of Columella and Palladius in the very early 2000s. As you will hear, Ivan is a deep thinker and takes wine extremely seriously. It was a great conversation. I give you Ibn Saadi. I'm here with uh, Ibn Saadi. Ibn, how are you, mate? No, I'm very good, David. Um, just getting adjusted to... Um, I thought we were talking to too many screens already, but it's just got uh, worse. Exactly. Thanks for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. For those who have been um, living under a rock for the last 20 years, maybe just uh, give us a brief rundown of, of you and, and how you your journey in wine. I know you went to Elsenburg. I spoke to Mark Kent this morning and your other, or one of your other classmates, Chris Williams, a little while ago. Um, how did you get to Elsenburg? Um, I, I kind of, um, I did quite well in, uh, in school in only but once. I did bad, but there was one subject in which I did fairly well and that was agriculture. So at that time, um, military service was compulsory and I, I went to, to go do my military service. And towards the end of uh, my military service, um, I spoke to my dad and my dad said, you know, even I, I think you really need to go into agriculture. And I said, but dad, I want to, I want to become a marine biologist because, you know, my love of the ocean and I want to go save the, the oceans, you know. and um, my dad is a very straight up guy and he was an incredible uh, person in my life. You know, I had uh, the privilege to grow up. Uh, my dad's unfortunately passed, but I had the privilege to have a great dad and a great example. My dad was, is kind of one of my superheroes. So, you know, when, when, in also in honor to my dad, I just said, okay, dad, no worries. I'll do this. Let's see what happens. And my dad said, go to Elsenberg, go and learn about. Uh, agriculture and I went to Elsenburg with the idea to just study agriculture. Um, I love agriculture, it's always been the center of my interest um, and at that time you're, uh, you know and Mark Kent was one of my classmates and like Chris Williams, we were quite a good class and um, 
I, I was there from an interest of agriculture. Mark Kent already at that time was there from an interest of mine and in the course of studying uh, viticulture and basic agriculture. He exposed a lot of us, you know, in the evenings, you know, when the other guys were drinking really bad booze. Mark Kent was always drinking really good wine. And he was just sharing what he knew about good wine and all of that kind of cross-pollinated a lot of us. And through Mark Kent, fell into the taste of great wine. And um, then once the hook was in, it was kind of a, a deadly combination because... My interest of wine grew at the same pace as my interest for articulate agriculture. And um, yeah, from that, that sort of set into motion and at the end graduated with a diploma in agriculture and enology and from there braved the wine world. So you finished Osenberg in 94, you run Mark over, you uh, destroy his knee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then you go to Europe. <laughs> He made me carry his bags for the entire yeah. journey. Yeah, 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 he said that. <laughs> and he, and he, packed, he packed super heavy as well. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> so he blames, he, blames, he blames me for a lot of things. Though, no, he, okay. To be fair, he blamed the booze. He, 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 yeah, it sounded like it could have gone uh, either way. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you went to Europe uh, on that trip and then you come back. What, what happened there um, in mid-90s? Out of Olsenberg, what were you doing? Um, I, um, it was really a very different um, wine country as opposed to today. You know, you, you had to... There was a very strict protocol and a very strict formula. You had to go work in a cooperative. If you were a young man, you wouldn't necessarily get the job as, as a winemaker at an um, estate or a small entrepreneurial winery. You know, there was cooperatives and a few estates. And most estates, by large, only had a position for a winemaker. So mm -hmm. the system role was very much there was a um, system whereby you had to kind of enroll as a system winemaker at some of the larger corporations and um, you know if you work long enough at that maybe you could become a winemaker at one of these larger corporations and then go on and join a state that is how it used to be i actually think the system had great value because what i often see today now is you might have a young kid that that goes to Elsenberg or goes to Stellenbosch. He comes out as a qualified winemaker and he hasn't run even a budget for his own home. And he then becomes the head winemaker and the manager for a small estate and he runs the books, a 5 million or 10 million or 20 million book. He can't run it because he's, he simply, you can't overnight as a 24 year old develop um, farming skills, winemaking skills, and economical skills. So I think the system in our days were kind of almost fairer on the individual and also fairer on the business. Because by the time you got to the position of being a winemaker, you had enough cross-pollination to the point where I think you were a better caretaker of the essential. So 
I enrolled in a big co-op called Women's Sophia Winery, made 7 million liters of wine a year for four years. I think the, I, I learned a lot of discipline in the military. Um, the military is exercise and discipline. Then in the, my cooperative days, uh, working in bigger corporations, learned a lot about organizational skills. And um, then Charles Beck and uh, Jabalani and some guys said, John Platter and uh, Charles Webb started out the first entrepreneurial winery in the Swartland. And I was the lucky bugger to get the job. How did that happen? I knew Anthony de Jager, the, the winemaker then and currently at Fairview. And Anthony just said, even, look, you've been four years at this. You now qualify. You know, I, I just went from assistant winemaker to winemaker in my designation. And then he said, I think you should apply for the job. It's a good job. I grew up in the Swartland. You know, I'm a, I'm a, 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 I would like, always like to think that I'm a son of the Swartland. I grew up yeah, in the in the Swartland and yes and then went for interview and got the job closed one door and another another door opened and uh, the next four years I remained at, at Spice Root got the job it was setting up a, a 400 ton which is basically a 30,000 case fine wine operation in the Swartland I just immersed myself into the project I basically drowned myself and I was working 18, 19 hours a day for four years. And I think at the time, I also realized that cross-pollination was very important. So I took about two months every year. Some years I squeezed two and a half months and I started working in European regions, you know, in the latter part of the winter, you know, the winter, September, September, October, we had a viticultural manager at Spicewood, so I wasn't 100% uh, responsible for the day-to-day running in the vineyards. So I could, in um, September, October, I could kind of, the wines were stable. I threw kind of a ninja bomb for two months. It was part of my contract. Started working in Germany, Austria, Oregon, California, Spain. Yeah, you know, all over, just started working, trying to, was doing two harvests a year, learning really fast, was exposed to a lot of opinions, a lot of interpretations. And uh, it was a wonderful time in my life. You know, I grew exponentially. And after four years, um, Spicewood was well-founded. I think we were well-positioned within the opinion of the South African public. Uh, South African journalism seems to seem to have embraced the project. I had very, you can understand from all the cross-pollination from what I saw in Europe and whatever, I really wanted to push the, the envelope and the boundaries much further. And I kind of just got to the point where I couldn't do it within the constraints of working for somebody else. You know, it was, it was getting to that point. I just wanted to go farther, deeper, and to some extent, maybe economically more suicidal. And that could never happen on another man's checkbook. So, Charles mm-hmm. Back allowed me to make a little bit of my own wine, and there I really pushed the boundaries. And I did that for a year and a half, two vintages within Spicer. But I think then the time came, and, and, and you know, I had to go on my own. Barrier of entry was enormous at that stage. You know, the barrier of entry today 
all you need to get involved in the wine business is you need uh, to find an old Chenin Blanc vineyard, a pickup, which is a bucky. bucky. You need some ripped jeans, um, a t-shirt with a cool slogan. Um, you need a good graphic designer that can design your labels. You need somebody that can do copy script for your website and your Instagram. Um, <laughs> And you've got... Uh, so what, 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 was the, what was the barrier to entry um, when you were trying to do it? I mean, what, what's, what, what's different? Oh, if you couldn't crack, if, if Michael Fridgen didn't give you the nod and the wine magazine at the time, the platter, you were roast. So there was no, other, there was no market, tick. is what you're saying? No, no, can't take two of those three boxes and you're dead. Go home. Go back to the military. <laughs> you had the platter guy. The wine magazine at the time, which was Ramsey's Sun and Parker's publication, and you had um, yeah, Michael Fridgen basically running for business. Day for you know, so, and if you didn't really crack the media in terms of those three, the Parker administration was not really active in South Africa. Decanter did a little bit of tastings, but not really. British journalism still very skeptical at the time. It was tough. And this is obviously before Swatnam was on the map, so they probably, even if they yeah. were visiting South Africa, they weren't coming your way. Yes, and, and it was at a time when Sauvignon Blanc, that smelled like a fresh cut lawn, was the, you know, the, the, the mainstream of, of, of things. And, you know, if you, if you didn't make a Sauvignon Blanc, that smelled like a gooseberry bush. So hang on for a second, just one second. I mean, that, was, that would have been around the time that, um, like, Wooded Shannon was having a bit of a rebirth with Beaumont's Hope Marguerite. It was before then, okay. Would it, would it, would it, Shannon only really came to the foreground by 98? Yeah, okay. So that, that's about time where you were starting to kick off, though, were you not? I'm sorry, so I'm sorry, I'm 2005. That, uh, 2005 was when Mulder's Bosch started making her oath, Shannon, and yeah. you know, John Neil started at the Morga. Uh, the Morgan of and yeah, things and spice would push. Do you mean, do you mean 1995? 2005. No, but like the Hope Marguerite started out in 96, didn't it? And FMC yeah, so from Ken Forrester. Yeah, they started, but I mean, that was like the trickling thing. But I mean, okay. when, when you talk large scale, when you had a category and you actually had a listing on the wine list, it was by around 2005. It was a category. Okay. Um, Kickoff 998 punch in properly 2005, I would say. Yeah, right. As those things take time. What was happening at Spice? I mean, um, Tom Lover was there for a short time with you, wasn't he? Yeah, at Spice? Was 2000, 2001. Yeah. yeah. A lot was going on. You know, you, you must understand that at that time. So now you're making, if you look back, first of all, I started producing the Kulumala, which was a Syrah, Mauvais, Grenache kind of blend. Syrah was just kind of starting in South Africa. Now you're making a Syrah, Mauvais, Grenache, so you're making it difficult for yourself. You're making it even more difficult for yourself because you're labeling it Swartland. So when you go out there, the only wine that you can find out there with Swartland is Swartland Bukatrauwe. That was the only wine of fame. Then that was in 2000, 2001. And then in 2002, I started the Palladius, which was the first 
Mediterranean blend in South Africa. Um, it was the first time Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Chenin, Sauvignon Blanc, and Roussan and Grenache was blended. You know, so I made two pretty unsellable wines. At the yeah. Time. What was the thought process behind Palladius? Was it? Was it? Did you did you see something in your travels in those past vintages in the in the northern hemisphere where where you sort of put the pieces into in together your head and you thought it might work or was it just a case of well it was you know necessity is the mother of invention no it was you when i started you know i was at the time i was working in spain and um spent at that point a lot of time in the south of france in the languedoc Roussillon. when i was working in uh, priorato there was a lot of white varietals planted in priorato and Peter Sissek started the Claude Agon project um, just outside Girona. Gerard Gobi was starting to bottle the Comchonest and those kind of wines out of uh, Carl's. Remy Pedrino started making his wines rock down glad. Uh, Master Master Gesak was already a reality, more known for the red then, but the white then came on stream. Raya's Blanc was certainly. Um, the, the beaming light out of the Mediterranean. Uh, I started traveling into the northern part of uh, Italy, in, or in Italy, in the Liguria area, you know, Genova, those areas, started tasting Mediterranean white wines in that area, south of France, Spain. And I just realized, you know, at that stage, I think very much fine white wine was very much thought of to be cool climate wine. Wines that was from Alsace, Germany, Burgundy, and Loire. That was yeah. kind of um, the not, highly reputed white wines of the world. Not, not and, only uh, cool climate, but single varietal, the vast majority of them as well. Yes, yeah. because, because of the, the historic development of grape establishing patterns in the world, when you farm in the Mediterranean, all varieties can grow in the, in the Mediterranean. All varieties can flower in the Mediterranean. And all varieties can go through fruit set in the Mediterranean. So all grapes can essentially bear fruit in the Mediterranean. Yeah. But when grapes then move into more complex and perplexed climates, um, they lose their capacities to flower to fruit set, to go through horizon, to go through various things. By those norms today, when you look at the world, it's not absolute concrete, but the tendency is that in cooler continental climates, single varietals is the main, the main line, and in the Mediterranean, it's kind of bigger um, varietal um, compositions. So, Blends will always be the Mediterranean um, reality. And so I just tasted all these great ones, right? And then I just realized at the time, the continental white wines, be it a white wine from uh, Touraine in the Loire, be it a Chablis from, be it a Riesling Cabinet from the Mosul or from the Rheingau, be it Alsatian, Tukai, uh, Pinot, Pinot Blanc or whatever. Very fruit driven, very aromatic, very elegant. 
But what the Mediterranean white wines had to offer was incredible texture. Texture mm. and depth. And when you talk about food and wine, the Mediterranean white wines have a very strong contender for the food and wine section because of their textural and appropriate elements to, their, to, to them and their white, their mid palate white. And then I came back to South Africa and I'm driving through all these young vines of red varietals. But driving through all of them, I'm driving through very old vine white varieties because that's our inherent legacy. Because of sanctions, South Africa in the clampdown, we uprooted most of our reds and we continued with the distillation of our whites. So we, we, we left our legacy as a lot of white old vineyards. So when you look at a lot of old white vineyards that you're driving through, you look at this phenomenon of Mediterranean white wines and their potential as a new category in the world. It just made sense to do it. And that's why I decided two years after creating the Kulumela, I decided to produce this Mediterranean white blend in South Africa. It's been, I think, in some ways, the most interesting work that I've done has been the Palladius. Well, it certainly it changed the, the white wine game in South Africa, it seems, permanently. Not, maybe not solely responsible, certainly uh, um, to a massive degree, because before that, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i very interested in the history of South African wine um, and the history of South Africa as well. But every time we have an old wine South African tasting, they're all reds, or virtually you know, 95% of them are reds. There might be one bottle in 20 that'll be white. So it was really from that time that I can tell from, from that, sort of, that sort of late to mid-90s time where whites were starting to be taken anywhere near as seriously as the as the reds and then obviously with palladius being as you say that first sort of shannon blend shannon you know in inverted commas cake blend with uh with more mediterranean varieties as well as as well as shannon um has changed the game i mean that that opened the door for for um for numerous other um great wines that you would put in the sort of top top 10 of south african wines white wines being um, made today you would think a, a good percentage of those would be those that style of wine. So it's a, it had a momentous impact um, and, it, and it continues to do so, for sure. Yeah, but it wasn't without, again, massive... I've only known massive resistance. You know, once you get used to it, it's not that you brush it off, but you kind of... You grow a thicker skin. It wasn't easy. For my, one of my favourite wines in South Africa is the Fergelechen White, the VGB. I still think it's a high contender for being on the top three white wines of South Africa. And at the time, Andre van Rensburg, uh, for me, that was when I started producing the Palais, that was the most prolific wine, white wine in South Africa. And I still think that even today, um, a lot of other wines have come since, but I still think even the most recent bottlings of Fergadefen is some of the most prolific white wines in the country. The, the interesting thing is the VGB is, is still very much a senior Sauvignon uh, uh, blend. So that's that kind of border white. And rightfully, with the climate they've got there, that's what's got to be made. Um, the Palladius that was made then has changed completely. You know, Palladius is, has been a complete evolution and has been ongoing. At that stage, we were blending four grapes. Today, we're blending 11 grapes. At that stage, all of the Palladius was in um, 
228, 15 to 18 year old casks. Today, the Palladius is in no more wood. It's all in concrete and clay amphoras. Most definitely, the farming techniques have been greatly altered in terms of how we manage our soils and the varietal composition. Today, the Palladius is a, is a blend of Chenin Blanc, Grenache Blanc, Marsan, Roussan, Viunier, Claret, Palomino, Senior Blanc, Senior Gris, Verdela and Carnival. And it is those 11 grapes because those 11 grapes are what is currently being classified by our producers organization in the Swartland as the regional grapes. So if you want to make a regional wine, an appellation wine, I firmly believe you've got to include all 11 grapes. If you, if you leave some of them out, it becomes again your personal preference to the appellation as opposed to the appellation speaking. Obviously, there's no saying that I've got to make the wine 40% Viognier because there's even grapes in the Palladius that I don't particularly fancy. But then I might only, we might only include one small amphora, which could equate to 5%. But a grape like Shannon, that's a very great stronghold in the Swartland in the Palladius, makes up 30%. 33% in some years. Depends on how the vines flower. But the latest today is 17 hectares. It's always the same 17 hectares. Mm. And it equates more or less to 1,000 cases of 12. I'm going to continually pull you back. Sorry. So when you were establishing Palladius or when you were sort of constructing it in your mind, how different was the, the first two wines from what you set out to create? What sort of forks in the road did you face in those, in those early, early days? Those early days were obviously, you know, you got to kind of capture the imagination of the media and all of that. And, um, you know, when you're 24, your enthusiasm and your sheer balls saw me picking the grapes much riper. You know, we were picking um, 14 and a half to 15 and a half. That was the window. And... I was continuously bottling the wines literally at 14.9% alcohol, just, just under 15 so that I could label it 14.5. We, so we picked much riper in those days. I think we worked with the juices. We still work quite oxidatively. I'm not a, I'm not a firm believer for where our climate and our soils are. I'm not a, a proponent of the reductive winemaking phenomenon. So we work fairly oxidative with the wine juices prior to fermentation. Um, but we were picking much, much riper and the wines were oak. And they were for a long time. They were for 18 months on the, on the leaves, uh, pre-bottling. And um, I never buttoned up the wines. I thank heavens I had the foresight not to do that. But the wines were definitely much more that double the volume, double the extraction. So we bottled them also with higher residuals. So I was bottling on average the early, earlier versions of Palladius consistently at about 3.5 to 3.8 grams per liter of sugar. Now the earlier versions definitely much bigger much fleshier, a lot more volume. And when you, when you work with mainly Viognier, Grenache, 
Shauna at the time. And the only reason I was working with Shauna is there's a, the oldest block of Shauna was planted literally 200 meters from the winery. Mm. So with my old vine thing, you know, latched onto that. And with Shannon also being picked very ripe. So much lower acidity, higher acidules. But the wines are still, you know, they're completely different wines to what we make today, but they had massive character, massive charisma, massive personality. They're good for that. And they've actually aged very gracefully. But over the years, the core focus has been, you know, the introduction of Palomino and uh, Claret Blanche and Semillon Blanc, Semillon Gris, uh, Verdello and Colomar. All of those inclusions have mainly been one part to have a greater representation of the appellation, but secondly, it's all grapes that ripen at about 12, 12.5% alcohol in the swat line mm. with another uh, gram to two grams per litre of acid. So the end product after 20 years is that the Palladius today is on average 1.5% alcohol lower and our acidity has gone up by a gram. The wines are much more focused, much more linear. But the yeah. one thing, we did all of this without sacrificing this weight and texture, which was the primary drawing card of being a Mediterranean wine. Mm. Because the biggest issue today is a lot of the younger guys and a lot of the newer guys, they, they simply pick earlier. But by rocking up with your truck and just picking 14 days earlier, it doesn't mean you're going to make a better wine because you, when you, if you just do that, you just brought your alcohol down, but that's not just what happened. You just pulled out the whole entire center core of the wine. So you end up making what I call a donut wine. There's a hole in the middle. So to keep, to keep the texture, the depth, the structure, and drop your alcohol by one and a half percent and up your acid by one. It's very, very complicated chemistry that needs to happen. I mean, that's one of the things that separates the good producers from the, the great producers, I suppose, is that working with vineyards and not only identifying vineyards that can be picked earlier, but the farming that goes into those vineyards that, that is required. If you want to work with XPHs, you know, whatever the number it being, in terms of it being a stable environment, in terms of not wanting to add back acid or add back um, sulfur to be uh, stable. That's where, I mean, some people, as you say, do the shortcut of saying, no, we, we pick early and so we don't have to worry, but then actually it's not that pleasant to drink. So I taste, you know, I try and taste this wide as I can. And I just think there's sometimes a misunderstanding and people think, you know, I think just arriving two weeks earlier and picking earlier, that's not enough. Yeah. There's got to be a whole bigger dynamic to truly producing this extraordinary wine at yeah. those numbers. But just like I mean, you... there's, no, there's, there's no secret today that the consumer and also all of us, uh, consumers and producers are now more lured to slide to lower alcohol, fresher wines with brightness to them. But all of that's got to happen with texture and uh, depth in the wine. And that, in there, that's, the, but wine is a very, very fair thing. You're not just going to get there by picking early. I think, yeah, I think you're right with that for sure. And I think there's other factors as well. I mean, had someone said to you in those first two days, well, you know what, picking at 14, 
8.5 to 15.5 and bottling at 14.9 is not the long-term answer. I'm not sure you would have been as that responsive at that time either. It took you experience and a long time to get to where you're at now. And I'm sure that had someone told you that you, you wouldn't have maybe you wanted to, you would have needed to live that experience to believe it rather than just be told by somebody. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah. The other, the other thing that, and it's, a, it's the same thing for Kulumela, you know, the wine today is, is still the same dry extract on the wine. It's the same anticyanin uh, prolification of the wine. Acidity is one gram more. The pH is substantially lower. And the wine has gone from being kind of black to red. All of that happened, but none of the texture and the depth of the wine moved. Mm. And that also took 20 years. Well, I think that the texture got a bit more refined rather than it didn't get less, but it just got more refined. You could, it got more tactic, um, tactile in terms of in the mouth. It was, it's still a, an impressive um, wine, but there's more nuance, more granular. Yeah, the wine was drier at some point, almost a little bit more dustier. But mm. I, I think that the one thing, um, and you can speak to Paul about it, you know, the one thing that we do here with Kulumela and Palladius, and we, it's basically with the, um, the other um, historical old vines that we work with as well. I try, we try, we only make vinification changes once every 10 years. Yeah, right. So we don't, we work from a decade to a decade. So in the first decade, we made the wines in one way. What is very important is that we, um, we and it's not just for the two signature wines, Kulumala and Palladius, but also for the um, historical, older, single um, parcel vinifications. We only alter vinification policies once every decade. A complete decade must run of a certain trajectory before we will go and change it. And there's a very important reason for this. If you make a um, resume, if that's the right word. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> at, at, at nine years, okay, or 10 years. So we make the manipulators for 10 years the same. Mm -hmm. You sit down with a vertical tasting for 10 years. You taste your policy in a wet year, in a dry year, in a heat wave year, in a wet year, in a wet year with heat waves, in a dry year without heat waves, in a heat wave without moisture and all possible combinations. So for 10 years, you didn't try to be the clever winemaker. You acknowledge that farming and agriculture is superior. So the grapes have, they arrive always in the same perfect state with the best farming techniques that you can. And your winemaking stays the same. So you can then read what you are doing, where climate is going. 
And then at 10 years, that first 10 years came to an end in 2009, and that's when Kulamala changed. So we did pre, pre that is, Kulamala used to be three pigeons a day, picked between 14 and a half and 15% alcohol. We had 70% new oak, and we did two rackings a year. And we aged the wines for 24 months in new wood. We came to that 10 year line. We sat down and we said, what, what, what's going on in Kulumela? And we saw in the warmer, drier years, this vinification was great for the cool, wet, more continental years, but it didn't work with the Mediterranean years. And we are in the Mediterranean, so we must design a system that's more applicable to our climate. So then we said, what are we going to change? So then we said, okay, we're not going to destem 100% anymore. We're just destemming the Kulumala now between 70 and 80%. Same is whole cluster. We only destem 20%, 25%. No more punch downs. Only one bucket over a day. We've got too much extraction. We're not picking the grapes over 14% alcohol. And we're only going to age it in 10% new oak. And the only reason why we do 10% new oak is you've got to renew your oak over 10%. It gives you 10-year old barrels. So we have 10 first fulls, 10 seconds, thirds, fourths, fifths. And now we've done, we've made the wine like that. Oh, yes, and then after 12 months, we racked it from the barrels, 10% new oak, into gold food. So it's a bit of a... I would say it's a Brunello de Montalcino, Piemontese kind of gizmo thing in aging. Mm. The vinification is almost somewhere between Burgundian and what is happening in many vinifications in the south of France and southern Italy at this stage. Combinations of those. And now we've made the wine like that for 10 years and within this lockdown i will sit with paul because we've now reached the end of the next 10 years we've we've made clumella now that like that for 10 years so we're going to now sit and taste 20 years in the lockdown and we will look at our first 10 years of interpretation and vinification and then our second 10 years the same we did for Palais. and I go to a lot of producers and they are busy with a thousand experiments in their cellar. And in the end, they don't know what the hell they're doing because if you move so many of the perimeters, you have no idea where the wine came from. It's better to, and this is the one thing I learned from the fine wine, the true, true fine wine producers in the world, the real my years, my mentors, they move. To move well, you must move slow. I've got a few you questions. Have, <laughs> huh? I've got a few questions should, about all of that. <laughs> no, you shouldn't jump on every train. Like now, the word whole cluster, yes. whole cluster is a term to be used in a sentence. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get to your amphora soon, Gibbon. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I just wanted a quick, quick question about the first ten years. It sounds like the wines, um, and I've you know, drank a few of the wines. Not 
keeps. Um, I managed to pick up um, a six pack of 04 Columella in Australia, actually. So I don't know how that got there. That I bought that. No idea. Uh, yeah. So it must have been probably maybe so an expat probably or somebody something. that immigrated. Somebody that immigrated and ran out of cash. Exactly. That, that's what happens when you get that Australia. And they put it put it on auction, and I got a and got a six pack of 04, which was sell the wrong thing. Which was which was delicious. Were you um, were you acidifying and adding um, SO two back in those days? I would have assumed by like getting it nice and ripe and, and adjusting it back. Or I think we acidified two tanks in O three, which was the exception. No, but we didn't. Yeah, right. That's um. Picked, uh, picked, those wines don't have much acid. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, but they're they still. Were, yep. They were bottled with about four. In the warm years, like 07, 4.8, better years, 5.2 grams. Okay. Not that, would have been, now, now. That, that would have been now quite rare got, back then. Marky was bottling his zero, um, also had pretty high figures. Yeah. The Stalinzer, even the Stalinzer zero, that kind of shipped things up um, in terms of being a reference zero at that time. Also, not too high acid. Um, yeah. What Arnold was working on, also not too high acid. Uh, yeah. The no, I'm, I'm, not say, I'm certainly not saying they were high acid, but what I was saying is like they were fully ripe and then because they were so ripe, they needed probably just a little bit of adjustment throughout well, the process. You know what's a scary thing? I asked Paul to, we basically going to, we analyzing or reanalyzing all of our wines because very interesting when you have an analysis of your wine two months after bottling and you then analyze it 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just uh, the chemistry of the wine, the, the direct chemistry, but also what happened to the phenols, how, how did your color pigments, what happened to everything. And um, the reality is I today cannot even at 13 alcohol potential in terms of ripeness on syrup today. I cannot at 13 get to the acidities I used to pick in 2000 at 14.5. Wow, that's interesting. With vastly better farming techniques. Yeah. At that stage, Roundup, no, very, very little cover crops, 100 farming techniques, inferior suckering techniques, inferior everything, inferior tipping, topping. Now we are farming with cover crops, we roll the cover crops, we, we trimming, we doing pre-verizon uh, green harvesting, we doing verizon green harvesting again, we, we do eight passes through the vineyards, we're picking one and a half degrees alcohol earlier on paper and we're still not meeting that acidity because that is what global warming's about. And probably a bit of drought as well, would that be a fair, fair influence? Yeah, of course. Um, and the, the, two moment, probably, the two probably aren't unrelated. <laughs> no, no. The moment a vine goes into hydric stress at the end of its uh, ripening cycle, um, the only thing it can do to then get the required energy to push the sugar into already existing high concentration is it requires enormous amount of energy. And the only way to get those energy is to push the acid into the Krebs cycle, which is the breakdown of the acids. And that's where it gets then this reserve of energy to do that. So your acid's gonna suffer in any stress-induced uh, instance. So 
Yeah, it's it's heart wrenching because I feel like it, I feel so almost in a way cheated because we're farming twice as good and we're not even meeting the numbers <laughs> of those days. <laughs> a victim of a uh, victim of history. Absolutely, and that is why I've got I've got a few more questions before you uh, yeah. before you launch again. Warren Buffett, um, very famous investor, said uh, his op- his opinions change when the conditions change. But your opinions change only after, after ten years. That's uh, interesting. Two very sort of uh, opposing philosophies, I guess. In terms of, I would guess that um, you know, if it was a really wet, cold year, he would advocate maybe changing your um, your protocols and your uh, and your techniques in line with what you saw the best way forward, given the information you had at hand at the time. Or am I assuming too much? No, not at all. No, nothing. It changed nothing. Um, the thing nothing. is, we're not. No, we. This place is very much like an old English boys' school. The thing is, that it depends what you're chasing. We're not trying to produce the world's most perfect wine, and we're not trying to produce the world's most famous wine. We want to produce the world's most honest wine. So in, in line with that honesty, you've got to, in some ways, push your own um, aspirations and your own things. You've got to kind of almost bench it because if you truly want to learn, you've got to listen. And that's why you need those 10-year intervals with fixed vinification patterns in order to allow you to read. If you ever worked in a laboratory, you can do as much testing as you want on anything, but the testing is absolutely worth nothing. The most valuable thing in a laboratory is your control. Where do you read your information from? So if you move your control samples, your measurements is all in void you might as well throw it away. You can't interpolate the information because you don't actually know where the readings are coming from. And that is why we don't change policy, picking dates, nothing with vintage. Super interesting, very, very interesting. It can't because I rather sacrifice a vintage at a point of a lesser wine if that's going to allow me to get to a particular point where we ultimately produce a great one. Understood. It's like when you go to the casino, some guys put on one chip at a time. We, we push the entire block and we put <laughs> it on a thing. And say, this is who we are. This is what we make a bet on. This you, is what we're going to ride out. You play the same number for 10 spins in a row, no matter what comes up. Doesn't matter what comes up. <laughs> Okay. Um, or if the game changes <laughs> if you're playing a different game this no no still i want to put it on number 18 yeah <laughs> you have a bit of a, a again sorry to follow up again on this it was a lot of information and a lot of new information for me so i've got a, a few questions you're seen by many and quite rightly so as, as one of the, the real sort of avant-garde producers of the new south africa if not the avant-garde producer in south africa and there's this sort of four-trekker romanticism about you and your wines. You might, you're probably aware of it. But is that part of that 10-year policy and the fact that 
no one's done, you're not coming into a family business where at least 10 or 15 vintages have been done before you arrived and you had that information. So when you started, you have, you got the clock at zero. So you have to put the runs on the board um, or the kilometers on the, on the, on the clock yourself. Is that part of that reason to get those, that 10 year block and, and really, as you say, put a control down? I think it's twofold. I think if you, if you were born into a legacy where, say my father was Bruno Chiacosa, I would sit down with my father, my grandfather, and I would, would be a great honor and privilege if they were my grandparents and parents to then taste through the wines of Bria Bruno Chiacosa over 40 years. You have a discussion, but I think with that you must, it won't change anything. You've got to go on with that trajectory because the timeline is much more valuable than me trying to make two more points on 100. What's the measure of that over the measure of generations of winemaking? So I don't think it changes anything because you, you need great wine are works of time. You've got to put time you got to pause it to be able to read it. Um, and I don't think you can do it in any other way. You, you can understand when I was 24 years old and I was working, starting, yes, I had 40 different yeast trials. I mean, I don't even use yeast today anymore. I haven't used a, a yeast in 20 years, but I was doing 40 different yeast trials in a year. I was doing fine trials. I was doing, I haven't found a wine in 20 years. Um, I was doing extraction trials on pijage on different, I was using 100 barrels of new wood barrels a year. I was measuring barrels, um, extraction points of different grains of wood. And this wine thing is a, it's a profession. And I think a lot of people don't understand the profession side about it. If you want to become the best surgeon in the world, you can't just do your surgery. You've got to go look at what the best surgeons in the world do. You've got to talk to them. You've got to go sit in on their operations. You've got to work through it. You've got to understand human beings and the human body. And, and you know, and, and it's the same with, with wine. It's a, it's a massive profession. It's not a... I'm pulling in with my rippy jeans and I listen to cool music and I'm driving around with a pickup and it looks kind of cool. And I don't know. Uh, yeah, there's a place for that. By and large, you know, if I'm going to take 300 or 800 rand or $120 out of an American's pocket, I'm not busy with an experiment. I can't sell an experiment or work that's half complete. The work must be the most complete it can be at that point in time. It can't be haphazard. We are very, very serious about what we are doing and we're not winging it. I think there's a lot of winging going on. Get informed and if, if it's not measured, you don't know. It's like guys that says, I don't need to analyze my wine. I'm tasting it. I'm like so connected with my wine. I'm like, okay, I just know that I'm a very lame, lazy producer. So I measure everything because I don't trust myself, quite frankly. 
<laughs> and I don't want the consumer to pay for my misunderstanding of my own trust. So, and there's no harm measuring your palate's understanding to the actual fact, because wine is factual. If I buy a bottle of Romani Conti or Armand Rousseau, or I buy a bottle of Bruno Chiacosa or Renato Ratti or Rinaldi or one of these great guys, wines of the world, lo and behold, the only reason I'm taking out that volume of money is because I know I'm not buying makeshift work. It's very long-standing concrete things. I think there's also levels in wine. I think when you're selling Excel at a 45 Rand Gamin Noir or Carbonic Pinotage, maybe this level of um, intensity is not required truly. Guilty as um, charged. I think if you are going to take 800 Rand out of somebody else's pocket, I hope that you put a little bit more work into it. And just to pick up what you were saying about um, professionalism and you spoke about the doctors, I mean, there's a reason why, and, and I can't remember who, where I read this or whose quote it is, but there's a reason why doctors and lawyers uh, have practices because they're practicing their profession. They're not, they, they never get to the end. They always try and get better every day. And, that, and, and that's really stuck with me. I try to do the same thing with what I'm doing and it sounds like you're doing the same thing with what you're doing. And that's really stuck with me. Uh, and that really is the guiding principle for what they're doing. Now, I'm very much viewing our place as a profession and a practice. And I'm definitely not going to go for heart transplant and um, go to a doctor that's not working on facts and, and measure. You know, when you're going to go for that heart transplant, you're going to go for the best known doctor that you can afford to yeah. go through this procedure that's got the measuring place. You know, if you're going to go take good money for wine, I think it ought to be the same transaction. Yeah, I think, as you say, I think there's different levels. I think there's, there are wines that are made for fun and frivolity that aren't, you know, you don't require a lot of cerebral energy on. You can just put them in your mouth and, and, and swallow them and enjoy them with your friends. You don't have to ruminate about the generations of farmers and, and producers who have gone into that wine. But there is that level, absolutely, as you say, that uh, of the top level that that extra bit is required for, for people to for dig, their, dig their hands in the pocket a little bit deeper. Where did, you, where did you make the first few vintages? I mean, when did you move into the cellar you're in now? Uh, the first two vintages I produced within Spice Root Cellars, I bought... Where's, where, was, where is all Spice Root Cellars? Is it um, on Fairview or is it in, in the Swatland? No, it's in the Swatland. It's about six kilometres from Malmesbury on the, on the old Cape Town, on the old Cape Town, Malmesbury Road. Uh, it's called the Calbuscrow Road, six kilometres from Malmesbury. There's the old Spice Street. Is it like due so south from, is it due south from Malmesbury? Due south, yeah. Yeah, okay. And, um, yeah, I've been on that road. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's why I produced two vintages and then the third vintage i i just left spicewood and uh, a friend of mine had a cellar in the fourth part of it not a cellar old shed so i converted that on the farm start of part of it. myself and uh, a friend of mine i literally grabbed bags of cement read on the back of them how it works <laughs> mixed cement i threw a floor 
I threw a floor, uh, I cleaned up the building. I got a small little mobile cooling plant for the fermentations and I made the wine there. But the Kulamella and the Palladius wine forever was aged on this property. There was two little farm sheds next to the old Lammershoek farm. And I leased them from the outset and Kulamella and Palladius have always aged here. And they still age in the same two build, old buildings till this day. So that legacy didn't move on. Yes, we make a little bit more. I mean, at that stage, in the initial years, I was producing about 6,000 bottles of each. And now we're producing about 12,000 bottles of each. And I don't really have a desire to make more. It's a thousand cases. It's a round number. It's a manageable number. It's a manageable number of vineyards that you can move swiftly around. It's like at the moment, for example, it rained 20 millimeters this past weekend. I've got to get all the compost out. I've got to get it spread in all the vineyards. I've got to do all the soil preparation and I've got to get all the seeds into the ground for all of our vineyards within the next 14 days. Yeah, so I can do that and I'm going to do it. And that is the requirement right now. Mm-hmm. If I had more vineyards, I don't know if I would get to it. Yeah. The difference, yeah. the difference between an average farmer and a great farmer is eight days. Timing. It's always eight days. A great farmer is always eight days ahead of time. And an average farmer is always eight days behind. <laughs> right. So it's actually 16 days then. <laughs> Uh, no, no, I say, yeah, well, the compound effect is 16. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Half a month. Paul's been an amazing addition to the cellar. He's been here long enough. How many years has he been there now? Uh, he came, this is, his, this is his seventh, I think his seventh year, eighth mm-hmm. year. So can't, he can't remain assistant forever. And... Um, I'm, I'm in no uh, space of energy where I want to share all the information I've shared the last eight years with somebody new again. Mm. Um, it just seems like a waste of energy. So he can't be an assistant forever and uh, he certainly earned that position. So that's why I retrieved myself and uh, he took up the position and the, the pivotal point now at the Saudi family is we've got the, we've paid all our bills. We've got the capital available to make huge investments into our vignettes and we've done that and we'll keep on doing that. And um, those investments is not just foolish investments, it's, it's articulate and uh, there's a lot of research that needs to be, hap- that needs to happen in the vignettes and I'm busy with that research and energy and, uh, it requires me to be to be free, and uh, but I've never worked hard in my life, and yeah. uh, I think there's been a huge benefit uh, to have me use um, in the sense that uh, you can run. And the French have a great term for when they talk about wine, and there's a lot of things to be learned, and I'm. Grateful that I learned at least one Latin country, Latin language, well, not French, but Spanish, but I mean, they're very close. Um, 
is the way pe they, they talk in the Latin languages about the production of wine and farming. And so the words that's used um, for wine in aging and is you are raising it up is one of the words translated. So if you are like an elevateur or whatever, or you grow up the wine in barrel. And what, what I often see is I see also in, not just South Africa, it's a global thing. Guys are very hands-on in harvest. They're like all over it. In the vineyards, in the cellar, they sleep a few hours, they day and night in the cellar. And then the harvest come too close and they start with the marketing trips and the Instagram posts and whatever they keep themselves busy with. And they're all over the world. But who's raising up this wine? Because raising up requires a presence at all time. And Paul is that presence at yep. all time. So he doesn't, he's not getting roped into stupid paperwork or this and that. I mean, there's a, there's a, margin of paperwork that he needs to do but it's 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 minimal he doesn't need to worry about quotes and invoices and maintenance of the seller he can just do what needs to be done to to improve the practice as you say mm. so and he is now at a level where he can truly raise our wines properly so every barrel gets stopped on the day, every day, for every month of the year, for every year of the 10 years. And it's made a huge difference. He's got 65,000 bottles that he needs to take good care of. And I think it's a full thing. It's a yeah. wonderful job. And I try and deliver to him the best possible grapes we can, the best grapes in South Africa. Whoever grows the better grapes will make the better wines. So yeah, it's it's been it's been great, and I've appointed uh, late last year a vineyard manager, Mornay Stein, and he's been now with us um, from August, and it's been also a process. Again, he needs to understand the culture of this, of what we're about, and all the intrinsic things here. But it's another person that can dedicate 100% of his energy to the articulate little things, you know. Our costs are going up massively. Um, our profits are coming down. Our company's making least, less money now than um, five years ago, but we're definitely making better wine. Yeah, but it sounds like you're investing in what you're doing more as well. So that's, that's obviously, part of that for sure and you know obviously a very smart investment i've got a couple of other questions if you have time yeah um throughout the, the 20 years you've had a couple of side projects or not necessarily side projects but other things going on so like there was obviously a, a project in spain and the sequillo project both of them are no longer your involvement maybe chat to us about why you started those or why you got involved in those and, and then why you exited them i was in europe often and um, it was for, for no other reason trying to learn from the better uh, producers in the world and um, 
I always say, if you want to play, I'm not a tennis player, but if you want to play world-class tennis, you must, you're not necessarily going to get there by playing against your little baby sister. You know, <laughs> you got to go out there and play tennis with the best. I'm a very average cricket player, but I remember the first time I stood at the crease and a professional guy bowled a full pace bowler, you know, high speed bowler came and he put a ball down. I never saw the ball. I didn't see the ball leaving his hand. I didn't move. I just heard it in the glove behind me. So what I'm trying to say is if you don't play with, if you don't look at people delivering balls at that speed, you're never going to be able to play them. And in the pursuit, I went and I worked under very many people in Europe and it ended up with me arriving in Priorato. I went there because of my interest of old vineyards and Priorat at the time was 1,800 hectares. So it's a very small appellation. What, what year was this? Sorry. In 2000. In 2000, Priorat was 1,800 hectares of which 1,400 of the 1,800 was vines older than 65 years. So I went there for that. Just fell in love with the place. I thought I would go for just a winemaking stint and ended up uh, falling deeply in love, not only with the place, but uh, Spanish people are incredible people. Uh, they, they're warm people. They're almost the closest people to us in Europe. The Spanish, Portuguese, uh, humor, sayings, um, out, basic outlook and just general things are closer to us than say Italians or French or German or whatever. So that was a good match and the f it was an amazing era and I ended up uh, setting up a winery there, uh, met a guy there, German friend, uh, became a friend and in the end he became a partner and we started a winery called Terroir Limit. And it started, we started in 2001. And in 2003, uh, came back to South Africa and was making this Kulmanan Palladius. And, um, you know, at that stage I was making 6,000 bottles of Kulmanan and 6,000 bottles of Palladius. So it's a thousand cases of wine. So you've got extra time, extra energy. And that distilled into setting up the Sequilo project. I think the Sequilla project would have worked today, uh, but at that time, I think it was premature. Uh, the communication, the labels, everything was way ahead of time. And as much as I tried to establish Sequilla as um, a different project, the more I tried to communicate it, the more people were seeing it as a second one. What was your messaging? What were you telling people? What was your... Uh, thought process behind Sequillo. It was a separate project. It's it was just another winery with a complete different wines and different vineyards and different policy and different pricing structures, different owners. And it was, I think it would have helped if I didn't do it in the Swatland, but you know, I was here, the grocery was here. But I, you know, for me, making a second wine is like, it's almost like, how do you train to come second in the 100 meters? Do you drink a bit more? Do you date a bit more? 
I don't understand the second thing, you know, and I definitely didn't go into Sequillo with a second attempt. It was a, it was a full hearted, it was the best attempt that you could do at that um, price range. And, but in the end, I just got so frustrated with um, miscommunication and it also had a cannibalizing effect on the Saudi family ones where yeah. people would think by buying uh, a bottle of Sequillo Red would be as cl- very close to buy- buying a bottle of Kudumela. And I mean, that it's fine that I knew it wasn't true, but I don't want people to live under that impression because I knew it wasn't true and I don't want that to live. So I just said stuff. So it's, yeah, and, people, people were buying clean columella. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's like... Uh, With your 2020 hindsight, would it have been better to, as you say, get away from the, the columella and Palladius style in terms of white and red sort of Mediterranean blends from the Scotland? It depends, people. Or was it just so... Was that, was that, that, that was the point of them, that, that, that obviously you were sourcing grapes for one, so you had sort of access to similar fruit for the net for the other one i think in small wineries the people are very much backing a person in small wineries so i could make a i could go make wine in yemen and order tomorrow but it will have a massive effect on what i do here even though it's a completely different region so but if i was a bigger corporation, I could have made both and could have kept the knees, nose clean if, yeah. if, if you catch my drift. Yeah. So I think there's at a small scale micro producer level, I think it's going to be inevitable to remove the, the human from the wine because it is just, it's just the way it is. Hmm. Well, it's no longer a vineyard's wine, is it? Yeah. So that's the one reality. And if you, you know, it just became impossible. And Spain, by 2009, my eldest son turned 12. And I remember flying home one, at one point in that time. And I came home and I saw my eldest son, Marcus, and I realized, you know, for the first time, Marcus was just like big to me. He seemed like, a big is is sort of looking like a man, and he and I realized I haven't spent much time with this guy, you know, and he's going to be at home for six more years, and yep. then it's all over, and I would have missed my opportunity. So I'm setting up everything up for a legacy, but yet the biggest part of my legacy is my time. It's only a legacy uh, if someone follows you, isn't it? Absolutely. So <laughs> I don't know how it works. I mean, in, in, in the Jewish culture, I'm not Jewish, but you know, at 13, you have your brother, that's not, and, and at 13, a boy turns into a man, you know, and Marcus was at the age of turning into a man. And I wanted to be there to guide him through that journey. And I went to back to Spain that, spring I went there to do the suckering on the vines and to put the help calibrate the spray pumps and everything to put the first sprays on and I, I was there and I just said to Dominic Dominic 
So it's in May of 2009. I said, Dominic, um, it's been a wonderful journey, but I think I've come to the end of it. I can't be on four international flights anymore. In retrospective, I mean, the, I, it wasn't just markers that I couldn't take into manhood. The Saudi family wines was also just remaining a toddler, you know, because I wasn't spending enough time at the Saudi family wines to have it grow up and become mature. So, you know, I thought I, I quit Spain to come back to see Marcus through his, his teens, but I actually came and saw the Saudi family wines also through his teens. Me quitting Spain was probably the greatest single decision I've made. Mm. Um, it came very costly because I literally quit Spain when that company started turning its capital and everything. Mm. But no euro I could have made there could ever displace what was achieved here in terms of the time that I spent with Marcus and his brother Zander and obviously now Lisa Maria at a much later stage and also seeing the Saudi family also through its teens. Literally a month after I then resigned as a, a director on that side, there was also the, the incident in Spain where somebody broke into a cellar and that area is, is a little bit xenophobic in some ways because all the great projects in Prerat is happened because of outsiders. Yeah. None of it happened by even Renee Barbier and Alvaro Palacios and Daphne Glorian and everybody came from outside. Yeah. You know, every single project there was. So there was this huge tension being built up at the time and, and our winery was really at that stage shooting the lights out. We just became winery of the year in Spain and lots of things. So I think just a lot of animosity and jealousy grew. And then we had the incident of the vandalism uh, in the winery. And I think still till today, a lot of people think I left because of the, the vandalism. But to set the record straight, that wasn't why I left Spain. I left Spain a good two months before that. And, you know, that's not even a reason to leave a place. Um, so there I had the same happen to it. And... I think, you know, it's just these unfortunate, and there's a lot of instances. I mean, I have many examples in the south of France and whatever of these incidents, but I left Spain so that everything that I was involved with here could become mature, properly mature, and it required my presence. As you said earlier, um, and I mean, it hasn't been easy. I mean, it, it, you look at the, 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 the brand, for want of a better word, the project, now and it seems to be firing on all cylinders as you say you've got money in the bank and, and money to invest in vineyard projects and really invest in in the uh, the source of the one ingredient that you require um to go forward which is the grapes but i mean i remember when i first arrived full-time in south africa and i was working at barata with with neil grant and i was sort of put in charge of the wine project while he was opening up other restaurants i mean you still had two or three vintages of scurfberg available at that time, and that wasn't that long ago. That was only six, seven years ago. Yeah, and, that, no, and now these things are, now these things aren't available. <laughs> we very much out of wine, mm. um, but it's a very good thing. I mean, there's a huge argument there. I get a lot of guys that call me up and I say, like, even you got to increase your prices because you 
I didn't say that. That's not what I said. <laughs> no, no trader of wine will ever say that because traders in wine don't really want to work. Um, <laughs> it's true. Um, they like sitting around and drinking glass of wine and being philosophical. Absolutely. Um, but, so, but producers would like to see that. And there's a big argument there because by large, the high end of South African wine is still vastly um, underpriced, I think. But at the same time, I don't think uh, we all know that, but it doesn't help you know that, but you don't have mature drinkers. Yeah. And, to, um, to, to what metric is it underpriced compared to similar quality wines internationally? Is that what you're using as the metric there? Yes, yes. Because okay. we gotta we got to accept that South Africa is now an international player and not a national player. So it, it means we play in international rules and uh, we should have a fair international table, but it is not. So what can happen is if you, as a, a, a purveyor of fine wine, uh, a lot of you get producers that call me out and say, listen, but you, you, you price stifling this thing because you, you, you're very conservative with pricing. But the issue, the issue is, and, and to, to talk about it, I, for me, if I'm, if I'm doing everything I want in the vineyards, and we, we're not vastly profitable, but we, we're profitable. I don't need to penalize the people that's been supporting us for the past 20 years. You know, say just by, because I've just become, just because we've just really became very successful. Thank you for supporting us for the last 20 years, but now you can pay double. You know, that's, that's not how it works. Um, no, so I think it's, you got to have a very mature uh, interpretation of it. And, you know, the safest way to go around all of this is get forensic bookkeeping in place that you know what is the actual cost of everything that you do. We are in our company, if it moves, it's counted. Mm -hmm. And uh, we count every single thing that moves. Every little thing is, got, is allocated to... Uh, a cost of sales account forensically. I mean, Beverly sits daily in doing this. And so I know up to decimals of a bottle what it costs. And, and they say in good business, you must make 22% profit over 20. Because one, you know, you, 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 you freeze up capital in our game literally for 36 months. So you need to hit certain figures. We hit those figures and that's the price. It's as simple as that. Yeah. It's not where you... You stick your one finger in your mouth and you hold it up to feel the wind. And you say, um, even Saudi is selling his old one shaman for X. So I must just be like X minus 30 bucks and I'll be fine. Because that's how a lot of producers do it. Yeah. But that's not a mature way of approaching this relationship with your buyers and your, 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 your clients. So I don't want to buy wine from somebody that's making his pricing like. I just want to go back on the on the on the um, the assumption that that South African fine wine is too cheap or not expensive enough. I think when you take into the fact that you know, as you say, viticulture in in South Africa only has been taken super seriously by a significant number of producers is only twenty twenty odd years, really. 
maybe 25 if you want to go back to to uh, when democracy really kicked in and just the runs on the board as well in terms of there isn't 50 vintages of many many south african wines that that can show you the the potential over a long time so i think those things have to be earned rather than just given away and it's not yeah but at the same, but at the same token new zealand's a very young country too yeah yeah and it but, gets significantly better prices so yeah they don't have a bulk market though they're not they're not trying to sell two stories i mean south africa sells a lot of bulk wine Wozer is is based on their their funding is based on volume and not value, so they're trying to sell a story of fine wine, but they get their their funding. And I'm not blaming Wozer; they do an excellent job for what they for what they what their remit is. Um, but it's it's hard to sell two stories. I mean, that's one of the reasons why South of France had have had much more problems than the North of France is because they are a bulk wine area. Yeah. No, that's why a small region like the Jura, without much bulk, could in the last 20 years basically reinvent their, their sale price and following around the world because yeah. there was no bulk tankers. But it's, yes, it is, yeah, no, you're absolutely right there. But I think we, yeah, you need the consistency and, and you know, to come back to to things, you that's why I say make your moves in ten year spans. Mm. Take a multi generational view of it and understand that you'll never bring the work to, to close. You know, you can you must do the best you can in your in your time. And I hope that and I feel now that I've still got quite a bit left in me. And I think that you know, if I if I if I were to stop today, I'll, I'll feel very good about what 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 we've done here. And, yeah. Uh, right. You know, I've got two sons, both studying viticulture and analogy at this point in time. So uh, that also changes the way you view a business. You see, it, it, it's it's incredibly heartwarming to know that there's a there's a very big uh, chance that things here will just carry on under under the family, you know. And it, it, but I, I think if, say I didn't have a son, not one, say I was now single, nothing, whatever. Or I had one, but he, he really, he wants to become that heart surgeon. I would have still done the same because they'll just give it to another young man. Mm. It doesn't need, could be anyone, you know. Yeah. It must just be somebody that's truly worthy of that legacy. Yeah. And it's very interesting if you look at what Aubert de Villain did now at the end of his career with um, his own winery, AP de Villain in Bouzeron, and with uh, Domaine de la Romaniconti. And it's amazing. So th those are great examples that just do it damn proper and don't worry too much about tomorrow. Just do your part proper and it will work out. Yeah, for me, the big thing now is this, like I said earlier in this conversation, we're struggling to get the same chemistry now at 13 alcohol than what we used to get at, at 14 or 15. And my days of work is about planting all these new varietals, um, better planting techniques, better soil preparation techniques, um, working on carbon presence in soils, uh, all these things, water management, uh, canopy management, 
cover crop managements, everything is so pivotal at this point because where is that, if, if this goes on for another decade and that we can't change the, the trajectory, it means that we're going to, without acid additions, we're going to have to bottle Swartland wine sub four and a half grams of acid. Yeah, and that's not a sustainable practice, I wouldn't have thought. No, I don't think so. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm going to be very uncomfortable yeah. bottling bottles of Kulamela sub 4.5 TA, total acidity, and selling it for 800 good South African rands to a human being and looking the guy straight eye in the face and know that I'm not having it. So, you know, I hope that somewhere within the 30 new varieties that we've planted and all the viticultural techniques and, and thousands of discussions we have weekly on the improvement of our viticulture, we need to, to come to some kind of result. Mate, do you have still have some, have some time or are you wanting to... No, 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 we're here. We're here. Okay, cool, cool, cool. No, I wanted to ask about the Oving Adriaks project because that, along with, with Rosa obviously leading the Old Vine project, I don't know if you recall when uh, Jeanette and I came to visit your cellar and Tegan was, um, was working with you. And that was, I was still living in uh, Australia at that time. And that was the first interaction I had with the Oving Adriaks wines. And I think... I think it was 2011 harvest, so that was obviously the third vintage you were making. Because was it the 2009, which was the the first vintage of those wines? Uh, Kirsten, I made much earlier. So, uh, but that was outside the old vine series as a series as a whole. So yeah, 11 was the third vintage. Okay, how did that come about? The old old vine series. Yeah. I was my, I was producing the Mrs. Kirsten, you know, and that I, I we took over the viticulture in two thousand five, and was the vineyard in Stellenbosch. And it's also, you know, it's like everything wine. It's, it's just a hell of a long stories. So just to clarify for people, that's that's the oldest Shenan vineyard in the country. Absolutely. So and it's in Stellenbosch, in, in pretty much in the suburbs of Stellenbosch. In Yonkersuk, in the valley, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, but it's an urban vineyard because yeah. it's on the edge of the town. And I, in 2003 and 2004, I was in amongst all the time I spent in Spain. I also decided to go and properly study biodynamics. So we went, we had one section of the course was in France and then one was in Spain and the last and the most compressed time was about uh, two weeks that we did in Switzerland. I came back and I studied under Pierre Masson. Then I came back and uh, I was fully fired up about biodynamics still am, um, but that's a long, hard other topic in discussion. <laughs> I tried to find somebody to work with me in biodynamics. And the only person, so Gene was doing stuff at Blowbot at Boromichis Kluwerf in Wellington with vegetables and biodynamics. So I touched base with her a lot of times. And then Carlos Suter was a guy at the time 
living in uh, Stellenbosch. And he was also in it. He was German, by German roots, worked in Switzerland. So he also had that inclination. So, and he was based at, he was dating one of the girls at Rosendahl. And um, so I went to, which was Kurt Arnold's oldest type. So we went there and I tried to do the 500 preparations in the Swartland, but you can imagine burying cow horns with cow manure in the Swartland, they all just dried out because the damn Swartland's just too dry. Um, so he said, no, but there's a big um, cliff up there and the humidity in the soil is perfect. And at that time, we were doing the 500 preparations we were making at his place or at their place. And it was at that time, one afternoon walking, that I saw this old Shannon vineyard. And I said, to him, what's going on here? Because the vineyard looked a bit dire and dilapidated. And it just looked like um, the absence of care. And um, so I said it belonged to this uh, older lady. And then I said, but what's the story? And I said, now we can go ask us, can't, we, can't I just look after it? Or we, we look after it or whatever, because this is just, this is just a crime. We ended up in a discussion and yeah, long story short, uh, I got the lease on the vineyard and I've still got it as, to, as of today. So started farming it in 05. First crop 300 um, bottles and um, through 10 years of hard work and care and love and tender, I think this year we produced 3,500 bottles. So it's grown many fold and um, it's one hectare and uh, amazing vineyard. So yeah, that, that was the first. So Mrs. Kirsten's the oldest vineyard and then by 2009 really, I really spent a lot of time with Rusa, really talking a lot about viticulture, the state of South African viticulture, the absence of viticulture, the absence of skill, the absence of care. Yeah, there's a lot of apathy all around, the, wasn't there? Yeah, all the realities. And then I think her discovery of the Skirtberg is most probably one of the most prolific things that happened in the last decade. And, you know, she called me up and said she went up there and she met with other viticulturists up there, um, Jeff at the time. And yeah, she said, you must come up here, you must check it out. And, and she wanted somebody that she could trust to make the first wines out of there to give her a solid report because she had the feeling and the inclination that this ought to be very good wine, but she needed liquid proof. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I was just fortunate enough to to have met Rosa and to have known her well enough, and obviously had enough of her trust that she then entrusted me um, with the first fruit, and she split the first fruit between ourselves and um, her employee at the time, which was the Rupert family in Franchuk. So both of us made the wines, and both of us had our interpretations, but both ends of the wines were equally good. So. Um, and then after that, Chris and I joined up there and, you know, a whole array of people. So that followed Paul Father Vineyard and Rebecca Steele followed the so when, when, Vineyard. When did the, 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 the Oving Adriac series as a sort of a, as an entity, as a collection, um, how did that come about in terms of the way you present the wines and in terms of, um, you know, 
very very different branding to the the two establishment wines. Yeah, the signature wines couldn't. There was no, you know, we we making a good red wine, a really good red wine. We're making a really good white wine. There's no more space for anything else. <laughs> what do you want to add? You know, so. But I'm. I love history. I love tradition. I love legacy. Um, there's a lot of wines in the world that I buy purely because I like their labels. I don't even like the wine that much, but I still drink them and convince myself that they're great. I like a good story. I like a good founded um, history on anything. And, and, you know, when you look at South Africa, I think by the late 2000s, I'm Afrikaans. There was this kind of cultural meltdown where the Afrikaans people didn't know quite where to put themselves. Our music wasn't a bad era. You were embarrassed to say that you were Afrikaans because we become, became almost like the face of apartheid in every in every essence. You know, it, it, all of a sudden everybody kind of forgot that the English also came here and the Dutch also came here and this is everybody came here. You know. Uh, the Portuguese came here, everybody came here. And I just thought stuff it, you know, um, not everything has always been bad. There's beautiful stories. There's beautiful stories from the 1900s. And those stories needs to be told. And I said, I'm going to tell these stories in Afrikaans. So the labels are in Afrikaans, but Afrikaans names are Afrikaans. I mean, if a Frenchman can label his wines with a French label, an Italian with an Italian label, and a Portuguese guy with a Portuguese label, why can't I label my wine with Afrikaans? And we labeled the first Afrikaans top to bottom labels. And today there's a lot, but it was the first. We were, I mean, we were the first practice, like you call it, that called itself by the word family. Today, everybody's family vineyards, but I don't really see the family. I see a director. So a lot of things get diluted. You know, I think this old wine thing will get diluted over time. Yep. I think, I think it's pivotal. I think it's very important. It's the important thing to tell. It's also South Africa is the oldest country in the new world. And we've got a hell of a story to tell. And we've got a hell of a story to celebrate and it just, it was the right time, the right place. We had the right vineyards. It, the story had to be told and it had to be told like that. And uh, we did it and it's been an amazing success. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been an incredible addition and it's, it's transformed also the dynamic of our domain and it's opened up new areas to us. You know, the whole citrus doll mountain area has now become almost a second home to me. And um, the West Coast has opened up to Ashkaspos and Paketburg. And because in the, at, up till very recently, the Swartland has pretty much been only Paketburg and uh, only Paderberg and Castilburg in, in Arabia. So Craig Hawkins wandered off to um, the northern into where Indakail and those areas are and just before you go pick a news curve and Stompy just set it up on top of Paquette but those are like three uh, 
that are thousand day projects, they're thousand days old. Um, very recently, the Swartland has been pretty much around the Woolworths and the supermarket. So it's expanding well, and it's, it's very important for Swartland that this expansion happen now because there is so much of the Swartland terroir that's still to be discovered. It's, it's, there's no reason actually to, to go and discover a new appellation. There's like massive appellations within this appellations. This is the big appellation in circumference in South Africa. So it stretches from the coast into the mountains. So there's so much playground here that's still not covered. And uh, I think all of that is going to add an incredible mosaic and filling the Swartland story. So I'm very stoked about Hawkins that have gone up there. I know it's not easy, but it's gone up there and it's, it's a regional story and Stompy's story is a regional story. Yeah, I don't know if another part of Old Oldwine Shannon is needed at this point. <laughs> yeah, there's, um, there's only so much space currently for for Absolutely. for so many um, and hopefully that you know with with the with the with the quality of the wines that, that the demand grows and then supply can can meet that for sure i think that's a really good um note on which to end given no absolutely thank you very much for your time um, i really appreciate it hopefully next time we can uh, actually share a bottle together and, uh, and we can talk about the future of sadi family rather than the past yeah, no, the future is um, it's very busy at this time. Um, <laughs> Thanks again. I really appreciate your time. All right. Have a good night. Thanks, Matt. You too. Bye. Bye.